These weeks when we lay in Parshas Shmois Vayera, Boy B'Shalach, Yisra, Mishpatim, are known in certain circles as the weeks of Shoivavim. Um, it already goes back to the Magan Avram, quotes the name of the Leket Yosha, that's one of the Talmidim of the Chumas Hadesh, and that this was a period of the year in which they would engage in Chuva and fasting. In the school of the Ariya Kodesh, um, the, this was amplified and expanded, um, this whole period, and it was also refocused on particularly uh, working on a certain area of tshuva as it relates to Taras and Mishpacha and those kinds of endeavors. So in certain areas, Svarim, within that school of the area, Kodesh, you find even that it's broken down, the different weeks to be working on different Nikudas. So Parashas Shmois is Tikkun Abris, Parashas Vaera, Tikkun Nida, Parashas Bay is Tikkun Goya, which has to do with our relationships. Um, with the Umas HaElum, and that part of Taras HaMishpacha, preserving, you know, the sanctity of the Jewish home. So maybe it's a Kedai thing to reflect upon is uh, the issue of intermarriage and uh, the Kedusha, the sanctity of uh, the Jewish home, of preserving Jewish identity and uh, Jewish uh, continuity. Um, as we'll see, though, some of the sources for the prohibition of intermarriage you would think it would be so well documented and, you know, and multiple sources that contribute here to the discussion. As we'll see, it's, it's much more sparse than you might imagine. Um, I don't think that that means that we have a more relaxed attitude towards it. In fact, I think just the opposite. That goes to speak to the fact that it's so central, so important, that it almost, we don't even need a source because it's so basic and so fundamental. is in last week's Parsha, um, of course, Moshe Rabbeinu comes to Paro and demands that he release the Jewish people. And Paro, in the name of HaKadosh Baruch and Paro, of course, is a belligerent, refused to release the Jewish people, and he's punished, as we all know, right, quite severely for refusing to do so. And, you know, the, Moshe Rabbeinu accuses him, you haven't listened to HaKadosh Baruch until now, and Paro responds, Mi Hashem, Hashem, who is this Hashem? I should listen to him. I, you know, I've never met him before. I don't know him. And, and in a certain sense, we're sympathetic to Paro's claims. Like, w- is it one of the Sheva Mitzvahs, B'nai Noyach, to, you know, to release the Jewish people from Mitzrayim? Or w- what did he do wrong, necessarily? And, you know, he wasn't necessarily acquainted with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So we're, we're a little bit left confused as to what it was that Paro fundamentally did wrong. So Baron Leib Steinman in his Sefer, Zechus Avak Abroch, in his Sefer Ayel Sashachar, in Parshas Vayera, explains that there, by definition, the fact that human being is created by Tzalman Lokim, there's a certain moral compass that is the expectation of every human being. And that's really what the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach represent. We could expand upon that on another t- occasion. But the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach represent that moral baseline that we expect from all of humanity. And those are uh, mitzvot, those are, are principles that um, are, are just and, uh, and moral society should arrive at on their own, the, these certain basic principles. And therefore, it was ex- expected of, of, of Paro that he should have realized that it's wrong. Obviously, the Jewish perspective on slavery, slavery is more nuanced, but it should have, um, he should have realized on his own that it's wrong to forcibly enslave a, an entire nation and to treat them in the cruel fashion in which he was doing so. And, and, and what Reviron Leib there explains is that there are certain things that are so obvious, so, 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 so fundamental, that every person is expected to recognize these truths, and it almost doesn't need a source. It doesn't have to be one of the Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Noach. It's so obvious and so pervasive. Um, you know, that that's, what, that that's what the expectation is. The concept, though, is really developed more by Ochana Watzman in discussing and addressing a comment of the Ramban, who disagrees with the Rambam, with regards to the uh, authority of Dinim de Rabbanon. The Rambam's opinion is, his view is, that all Dinim de Rabbanon are subsumed within Loisasar. The mitzvah of Loisasar and Adavashi Yigidu Chayimino, small the obligation to listen to the Beis and Agado. So the Rambam believes all Dinim de Rabbanon are subsumed within Loisasar. The Ramban argues, 
And he asks if that would be the case. So why do we have the rule generally that suffik derabanan lakula that we treat isurim derabanan different than isurim deraisa? And where if there's a suffik, then we could be lenient. Every suffik derabanan is really suffik deraisa. Vloi sasim and adavar sheyagidul chayaminu smos. Therefore, the Ramban argues that all dinim derabanan are not subsumed within loy sasim. Okay, and there's a good answer for the Rambam, and that's what Bukhanan there is discussing. But Rabbi in the course of that discussion, wonders, according to the Ramban, if all the Rabbanan are not subsumed within Loisasar, why do I have to listen to Chazal? How do you know you have to listen to the Rabbanan? What is their authority based on? So Bukhanan there develops the idea that there are certain principles that are so fundamental, so basic, it doesn't even need a source. Like it's so obvious from the way that the Torah is oriented and the stories that appear in the Torah and the views of the Torah and the attitudes of the Torah, the sensitivities of the Torah, that of course we have to listen to Chazal who are advising us how best to go about keeping the Torah in the mitzvahs with our chalkis, with the tachanas, with the xeris that they, with they, that they institute. So Rabbi develops the idea that there's a thing called Ratzan HaTorah, meaning it's so obvious and so pervasive it almost doesn't need a source. Rabbi uh, Asher Weiss in his Sefer Minchas Asher Develops, expands this concept to other areas. So, Lamashal, one of the, uh, the areas where he expands it to is with regards to Tzar Balechaim. The Gemara Mesef is about Metziah and elsewhere discusses the Isser of Tzar Balechaim, of treating animals cruelly. Of course, we can use the animals in order to advance humankind and for things that we need them in a utilitarian society, but to um, be cruel to animals gratuitously is obviously, is obviously wrong. So, the Gemara has a debate though whether Tzar Balechaim is Deiraisa or is it Derabonim. Within the view that it's Deiraisa, the Gemara never cites a source. What, what's the, you know, what is it based on? If it's Deiraisa, presumably we have a Pasuk. So Rashi writes, well, it's based on the Pasuk of or the mitzvah, Priko But if I see my friend's animal suffering underneath the burden, I have to help him unload the burden, the, you know, the packages. So you see, you have to care about the animal suffering underneath the burden. Or the Shidim Kubetza is quoted in the name of the Ravid that it's based on uh, the Pasuk of Oisachim Shor Bedishoi, that you not, should not muzzle the animal while it's working, um, because that's, you know, somehow cruel to the animal to be muzzled while it's working, is entitled to eat while it works. So you see that we care about the feelings of the animal. The Rambam in the Moran of Uchum claims it's based on the Pasuk and Parashas Bullock when Bilam starts hitting the donkey as he refuses to move on. So the donkey turns around and he says to Bilam, Why are you hitting me three times? So, uh, you know, the expectation was that Bilam should stop. So you see that the animal protested from being hit, and that's somehow conveying the Ratzon of Kodesh Baruch Hu, that, you know, you know, it's wrong to hit animals. But all of these sources are quite weak, right? And Priko Te'ina is a mitzvah. It's not necessarily talking about Tzar Ba'alichayim in a general sense. But it's not from also. It's talking about one specific context. And the story of Bilam, you know, there's a lot going on in that story. To derive from the Tzar Ba'alichayim seems a little bit far-fetched. But Usher makes the point that perhaps, perhaps that's exactly the point. The reason why the sources are kind of all scattered all over the place and not as uh, pronounced as you might think, is because this issue is so basic, it's so fundamental to the sensitivities the Torah expects us to have, the, the, of course we understand that it's wrong. It's the Ratan HaTorah to understand that it's wrong to be cruel to our Kaddish Baruch creations for no, you know, for no reason, for no purpose. Why would you do that? Right? Obviously to use animals, we're entitled to use animals. You know? We don't have that, that kind of you know, perspective. But <coughs> Animals don't have rights in that way, right? But we can, we can we have the right to use animals. They're here for our, for, 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 to advance society um, and to help us serve our Kodesh Baruch Hu in the best possible way. But to be cruel to animals, of course that goes against everything that we stand for. Um, and the sensitivities the Torah expects us to develop. So that, that's a violation of the Ratzon Torah, the overarching principles, the basic fundamental principles of the Torah. Another example of Asher gives is with regards to Chinuch, the obligation for children to perform mitzvahs while they're less than bar mitzvah is only Midrach Banan. To fulfill sukkah, sit in sukkah, to take lulav, mitam chinuch, is only, only misa midrabbanan. 
What about the obligation for a father or parents to see to it that their children are shaymet mitzvahs when they get older? That dream of every parent that they should follow in their footsteps and keep the Torah in the mitzvahs. Is that a mitzvah midday raisa? You know, presumably it is, right? Where's the source for such a concept? Yes, it's a mitzvah to teach your children Torah. That's only Talmud Torah. It's a mitzvah to tell your child, But how do I know that I have to make sure my child is a Shem Torah and mitzvah when he gets older? Not to take Luluv now, to take Luluv when he's 15, when he's 16. So the Meshachach from Parshas Vayera identifies the Pasuk there where Kosh Baruch says to Avram Avinu that he was chosen um, for the unique mission that he had. I chose you because I know that you're going to command your children to follow in your footsteps. So it sounds like that's an important thing to command your children to follow in your footsteps. So the Meshachach says, you see from here, this is the source of the Mitzvah Midar Rais of Chinuch. But that, that, that's a weird... That's, that's not really the context. It's not uh, in a directive in that way. Because who's describing the great qualities of Avram Avinu. So Rabbi Usher suggests, again, maybe that's exactly the point. There is no specific Pasuk we can point to because this is so fundamental. This is so basic. We don't even need a Pasuk. It would be, it would be an affront to the severity of the issue to limit it to one Pasuk. This is something that, that pervades um, you know, everything, everything that, that, uh, that, that we stand for. And I think that the issue of intermarriage as well, as we'll see, the source material is somewhat uh, more sparse than you might imagine, is, it, is, is not uh, you know, because we have a, you know, a more relaxed attitude towards it, it's uh, because we have so, it's so, so fundamental, it's so basic, that of course, you know, it goes beyond any one specific pasuk or, or you know, source in particular. In fact, the Gemara tells himself this brachas, that there are three of us, Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. That's it. However, Rav Hutner writes in the Pachet Yitzchak that Yosef is somewhat considered to be an Av. It's like a quasi-fourth Av. Right? Yosef makes it into certain lists. The, the Ushbizin, the Shiva Royim. Right? Yosef is there, but there are other people there too. It's not an exclusive list. But Yosef is somehow considered to be one of the Avas. How so? Well, his children, right? His children are two of the Shvatim. So if his children got promoted to be you know, one generation, to be part of the Shvatim, well, if they got promoted, Yosef gets promoted too. So if they got promoted to be on par with Shimon Alevi, uh, so then Yosef should get promoted a little bit to be on the Madrega of Yaakov Avinu. And we find that the Avois and their story, adventure, and their death is recorded all in Sefer Bereshis. The death of the Shvatim is not recorded until chapter 2 of the story of the Jewish people in Sefer Shmois. The Avos are recorded in the first, you know, in the first uh, volume, in the first chapter. That's in Sefer Bereshis. The rest are in the, the Shvatim are in the sequel, right, in, 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 in Sefer Shmois. Yosef's death is at the end of Sefer Bereshis. Right? Yosef dies and he's placed in an Aaron. That's how Sefer Bereshis concludes, with the death of Yosef. So he made it in underneath the cut, right, for Sefer Bereshis. So, Hutner explains, because Yosef is somewhat a quasi-av. In what sense is Yosef one of the founding fathers of the Jewish people? Avram Avinu is the founding father of the Jewish people, he's the first Jew. Yitzchak was the first person who was born Jewish. Yaakov Avinu was the first one whose children were all Jewish. There you have it. That's the secret. That's the ingredient, the recipe for the continuity of the Jewish people. Someone who was a Jew, his child is Jewish, and now all of his, he himself was born a Jew, and then... His children are all Jewish. No, no, no. But there's one trap door. There's one back door that could undermine the whole system that's going to be a hole in the boat. And that is intermarriage. It's intermarriage. You can marry out and the whole Jewish people will be assimilated and diluted into the culture around it. 
that could undermine the continuity of the Jewish people. And that was perpetrated, right, with uh, Dina and Shechem. That relationship that was represented by that relationship between Dina and Shechem that could have led the Jewish people to become assimilated in the culture around it. So who was the one who closed the door on assimilation and ensuring the uh, continuity of the Jewish people? That was Yosef. Yosef was tempted by the Ashes Paitifar and he multiple times refused her uh, advances. And Osnas, who he ended up marrying, was the product of the relationship between Dina and Shechem. So that, that, uh, box, that uh, door that was opened by Dinah, the relationship between Dinah and Shechem was closed by Yosef. He's the one who brought the loop to the close. So Yosef, in a certain sense, is a quasi-av, one of the founding fathers of the Jewish people, because he closed the door on, on assimilation. But of course, assimilate, if you allow intermarriage and assimilation, if that occurs, so then the identity, the destiny of the Jewish people could be, Chaz uh, could be could be lost. And this was something they were aware of all the way at the dawn of Klal Yisrael. Going all the way back to Parashas Vayishlach, after the episode of Dina and Shechem and Shimon and Levi take their extreme actions and seeking revenge, so they explain their actions, they justify their actions to Yaakov Avinu, and they say, Ki travesty had, an injustice has occurred, and so shall not, you know, so should not happen. So that you see already that they were aware that this was something that was wrong, right? Uh, that this was something that, that they recognized was an existential threat. Later on in Parashat Vayeshev, when you, Tamar is pregnant, and it doesn't seem to be that it was from her husband, you know, they're alive, so Yehuda says, We should take her out and burn her for, you know, kill her and put her to death for the for violation of having relations with a non-Jewish man. So Briskarov already in his Chidushman, Alatayra over here, Oisalev, derives from here that already in those days, in the early days of the Jewish people, they understood that um, intermarriage assimilation was going to be an existential threat, and therefore was something that had to be treated, um, treated quite uh, seriously. Uh, the, he, he cites, as we'll see in a second, that there was Xayer from the Beisdin of Shame, already in the times of the Yavis, that uh, against uh, any kind of relations with uh, non-Jews, a kind of uh, intermarriage, because of course it could lead to the dilution of the Jewish people's identity and their mission. So this is something that is quite fundamental, it's basic to everything that the Torah stands for, and as we'll see, even though sometimes the source material is a little bit disappointing, um, that it shouldn't be disappointing. If we should reframe it to understand that it's perhaps you know, scattered all over a little bit because it is so obvious, it's so basic, it's so fundamental, that it almost goes beyond any one specific source. But there are really three avenues that we could explore as to where to find a, you know, the, the roots of the prohibition of intermarriage if we were looking for a source um, in, the, in the Torah itself beyond the meta-issues which we've been uh, discussing. So Pazik tells in Parashat Vashchanon, when Jewish people enter into Eretz Israel, which will be inhabited at the time by the Shiva Umois, by those seven nations that inhabit Eretz Israel, time of Yeshua the Nuns, who are obligated to remove them, to, to, to destroy them, hacharim tacharimim, you shouldn't create a bris with them. And then the pastor continues, You shouldn't give your daughters to marry their sons. So you shouldn't have either permutation of intermarriage. Your daughters should not marry their sons. Their sons should not uh, marry... Uh, I'm sorry. Your daughters should not marry their sons and your sons... Your son should not marry their daughters. But then the pastor continues, Because he will bring your son astray. He will bring your son astray. The Pasuk is Belash and Zachar. Ki yasir as bin Who is the he in the Pasuk? So Yishayim said, you might have thought it was the father-in-law. Because if there's intermarriage, the father-in-law, who's not Jewish, is going to bring your child astray and lead them to worshiping of the Zahar. Ki yasir as bin That can't be the case, because if it would be the father-in-law, why does the Pasuk pick 
bincha as opposed to bitcha. If it's referring to your child and the father was going to lead the mishra, why focus on the son and not the daughter? So therefore, Rashi quotes in the Gemara Masech the Sanhedrin that no, it's referring to the uh, son-in-law. That you have to be afraid that your son-in-law is going to lead your daughter and her child, her son, astray. Because that child is going to be Jewish. Because the mother is Jewish. So if it's your daughter who marries a non-Jewish man, you have to be afraid that that non-Jewish man, the son-in-law, right, your son-in-law, is going to lead your grandchild, the son of your daughter, astray. Ki yasir as bincha because he is still Jewish. And you have to worry about the subsequent uh, assimilation that will occur, and there will be a negative influence on him, and he'll bring him to worship over the Zara. But he at least is, continues to be Jewish, because if the mother is Jewish, the child will continue to be Jewish. The Torah does not focus on the ensuing Pasuk, on the child of your son, if he marries a non-Jewish woman. Why not? Because the assimilation already occurred at that moment of the marriage. That's the point of departure, because the child of a non-Jewish woman, of course, is not going to be Jewish, and that's why in the ensuing Pasuk, the Torah doesn't focus on that assimilation, because that already occurred at the point of intermarriage itself, not in the next generation. Okay, so we see from this Pasuk, we're prohibited from marrying any of the members of the Shiva Umos who inhabited Eretz Yisrael at the time of Yeshua ben Nun. The Gemara actually derives from here two principles. One is that, um, as Rashi here explains, the Gemara is Kiddushin, Lo Bahem there is no tfisas kiddushin with a non-Jew in either direction, whether it's a Jewish woman marrying a non-Jewish man, a Jewish man marrying a non-Jewish woman. There is no tfisas kiddushin, meaning the kiddushin, even if they try and affect kiddushin, will be meaningless and insignificant because they are so incompatible that there doesn't, you know, kiddushin, the roots of you know, the beginnings of kiddushin don't even, don't even start. You know, for example, if uh, Kayan wants to marry a Gusha, you know, marries a Gusha, so then... Obviously, he's doing so and living in sin. Not allowed to marry a Gusha. But if he does, there is Tfisas Kiddushin. The Kiddushin sticks. There's some significance and meaning to it. Um, but it is Be'iser. However, a person tries to marry their mother or the father tries to marry his daughter, there's no Tfisas Kiddushin. It's, uh, it's a meaningless, insignificant act because they're so incompatible that Tfisas that Kiddushin is simply not, 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 not possible. It's not on the table. So similarly, uh, Jew and Anandru, we derive from this Pasuk, Lo Bam, that there isn't any tfisus kiddushin that's possible here because they're so entirely incompatible. But then there's another implication, which of course is the pshutah shemikra, that is prohibited to marry them, any one of these shiva umais, the seven nations inhabited Eretz Yisrael, the time of Yeshua ben However, that's limited to what? What is that limited to? The seven nations inhabited Eretz Yisrael, the time of Yeshua ben What about any one of the other umos ha'elam? So the Pasuk continues and gives us a reason why you shouldn't do this. It's going to lead your family astray. They're going to worship Avaita Zara. That could apply to any one of the Umos Ha'ilam, particularly those right, that worship Avaita Zara. Um, not limited to the Umos that inhabit Eretz time of Yeshua Ben-Nun. So the Gemara quotes the opinion of Rav Shimba Yochai, the Rav Shimba Yochai held that Darshin on time of the Quran. His methodology of learning was that if the Torah provides a reason for the mitzvah, we can use that reason to um, extend or limit the application of that mitzvah. You can use the reason to expand or limit the application of that mitzvah. So over here, the Torah gives us a reason. What's the reason? Because he's going to lead your son, your child, astray. That should apply to the other as well. And therefore, according to Hashem Bayochai, we could extrapolate from this passage not only to Shiva Umas and Habedar Tzil Tamim Yeshu Benun, but to other nations as well. However, according to the Rabbanon, you really can't. According to the Rabbanon, the Rabbanon disagrees with Shem Bar Yochai, their sheet to throw out Shas is loy darshin on time of the Kra. 
the assumption is that all the mitzvahs have reasons. Now, there is a view amongst the Akhrayim that there are no reasons for mitzvahs, right? All of them are really chukim on a certain level, like, uh, like a paraduma. Um, however, Rav Rishonim have the opinion that all the mitzvahs have reasons. Um, but even if we can try and, 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 and intuit, you know, we don't understand the depth of the reasons and the impact of a mitzvah, of course, is beyond us, but at least to understand the basic reason for the mitzvah, um, you know, we can, even if you are able to intuit it, even if the Torah tells you about it, you don't necessarily have the right to extend the mitzvah or to limit its application by virtue of its reason. So the opinion of the Rabbanon is, darshin and time of the cross. So even though the reason for this mitzvah is, is already stated in the Pasuk, because it's going to lead to assimilation, it doesn't matter. You can't extend the Pasuk from, you know, from the, you know, to other areas. And the Torah was stated, this is, of regards to Shiva Umois, seven nations have it at some time of Yeshua Benun, you have no right to extend it to other nations. So according to the Rabbanon, it's limited to the Shiva, according to the Rabbanon, it should be limited to the Shiva uh, Umois. Another limitation of this Pasuk is, so according to the, according to Shem Baruchai, it can be extended to other Umois, according to the Rabbanon, it's limited just to the Shiva Umois. Another limitation the Gemara brings up in Masech Tzvay is that this Pasuk is only talking about Chitun, it's talking about marriage. What if it's not marriage? It's uh, a relationship, but it's not a marital relationship. Is that necessarily included in this Easter? So probably not. No, it doesn't sound like it. The Gemara says it's only derech ishos. If it's not derech ishos, not. So it's chatin bam. Is one possible source for the issue, you know, intermarriage? According to Rishim Bayechai, even though the pasuk was stated the Shiva Umas, we could extrapolate from there because the reason for the pasuk is it'll lead to you know assimilation, and we could apply that to other Umas as well. So we can extrapolate to other Umas but it's still limited to derech ishos. According to the Rabbanon, no, the whole thing is only talking about. The Shiva Umos, the whole thing is only talking about those seven nations, the Habit of the Torah, the Habit of the Shubhanon. How do we pass it? Yeah? But isn't the whole point that the assimilation is going to come from the child that you have, so that it has nothing to really even do with, like, it's not dealing with getting married, the person is having a child person. So you're saying it should be limited to that one direction where the child is going to be Jewish? Meaning if it's your daughter who's marrying their son? According to that. that yeah. It could be, though, one could expand it even beyond that, that it's, it's, we understand the purpose of this Easter, even though the Pasuk and the ensuing Pasuk is only talking about the child, that's because that continues to be a concern in that one direction. I hear your point. I think that there's some unclarity, whether it's only the one direction or it's actually going in both directions. If you look at the Ramam, though, the Ramam clearly understood this Pasuk is referring to both directions. The Ramam writes, If you have relations, meaning for the purpose of marriage, whether it's a Yisrael, who has relations with a, it's a Jewish man, a non-Jewish woman, or a Jewish woman with a non-Jewish man, Derech Ishos, Bam. And the Ramam continues, Shiva Amim It's not only limited to the Shiva Amim, then have it at time but none it extends to the other nations as well. The Ramam here adopts the view of Rabshim Bayukai that Darshin and Time of the Kra. The Ramam is inconsistent whether he passes like Rashim Bayukai or not, not for not for our discussion now. Whether he passes Darshin in time of the crowd, Lloyd Darshin in time of the crowd is a famous tira in the Rambam, but at least in this instance, the Rambam here adopts the Shimba Yechai's view that Darshin in time of the crowd, this is applies to other Umus Haylam as well. Yeah. This is only with regards to marriage? Marriage, only Darshin. So what if it's not Darshin? Well, we'll get to that in a second. So it goes, is over here, cites the tour. The tour disagrees with the Rambam. He says, Nira Lisha, Eno El Beshiva Umais. No, he passes like the Rabbanon, Lloyd Darshin in time of the crowd. The Lloyd Kamal and Kurb Shimba Dharma Kiyasa, the Rabbis call him Asirin, it only applies to um, the Shiva Umas doesn't apply to the other Umas Ha'ilam. Okay, but even according to the Rambam, that applies to the other Umas Ha'ilam, that's only Derech Ishus. What about if it's Derech Znus? Well, it's Derech Znus. You don't do it. You know, it's a one-time occurrence. 
Not derech ishos. Or maybe it's you know ongoing thing, but it's not meant be derech ishos. So the Gemara Masechet Zvayi Desara here cites that there was a gzera of the based in of shame that was already we mentioned earlier from the Briskarov. He was quoting this Gemara Masechet Zvayi Desara that in the times of shame, meaning all the way back in the time of the Yovis, they already recognized the danger right of intermarriage that could lead to incivilization. And therefore, and undermining right the integrity of the Jewish people, their ability to accomplish our mission in this world, and therefore they established exera, That's what Yehuda was so upset about Tamar about, right? It wasn't b'derach ishos, but it was, uh, and therefore he said, But this was assumed to be exera. Okay, what is it? Only nisim d'rabbanon. Only nisim d'rabbanon. Okay, okay, but that's what we have. We have exera the based in shalshem. So for the tour, that's all you have. For the Rambam, you have it, you need the Zizayah of the Beis and Shoshim for Deros. Notice, according to the tour, right, the Pasuk doesn't extend, the Shadimam doesn't extend to the other Umas Ha'ilam ever. It only is limited to Shiva Umas. So then the only thing you have is the Zizayah of the Beis and Shoshim. However, there is another, uh, again, possible avenue that needs to be explored, but not only by Shadimam, and that's brought up by the Gemara Mishnah Tzvay Dezerah back over there, Ois Dawid. The Gemara says, a Jewish man who has relations with a non-Jewish woman that is a halachal emoshim isinai that kenoim pogimbo. This is based on the episode of Pinchas, right at the beginning of Parshas Pinchas, when he sees Cosby and Zimri, it's actually right at the, the end of Parshas uh, Balak, when he sees Cosby and Zimri having relations, a Jewish man with a uh, Moabite, uh, right? Midiani? I think she's Midiani, right? Uh, Midiani woman. So he kills them while they're in the act. Kenoim pogimbo. The zealot can kill them in the act that's based on Lach Lamesh Sinai that, uh, that uh, Pinchas knew he was entitled to do that. Kenoim Pogimba. So you see that that's, okay, that's a pretty severe prohibition uh, or, or issue such that Pinchas was able to take matters into his own hands and to kill them in the act. So the Bible says, well, that's Bifarhesia. That's what was done in public, like the mice of Cosby and Zimri. That was done in the presence of 10 Jews. That's Bifarhesia. Chil Hashem. If it's Bitsina, the Gemara says no. Then it wouldn't apply Kinoim Pokembo. But the Gemara continues that even Pitsina, there's a Xera of the Beisdin of the Chashmonoim. The Beisdin of the Chashmonoim were Geyser, even Pitsina, that this is prohibited. Okay, but it sounds like, you know, if we want, you know, only focus on Dinim Doiraisa, we have Allah Chalmashmi Sina that at least if it's in public, a Jewish uh, man with a not Jewish woman, that Kinoim Pokembo, that the Kanoi has the right to kill them while they're engaged um, in the act. And, and that's only limited to that one direction if it's a Jewish man and a non-Jewish woman because there it's a little bit more severe in that sense because the Raman writes over here in Hukhsi Surabiya that if it's a Jewish man with a non-Jewish woman, so that's worse almost than any of the other Arayos because, the, of course, the child, the product of that relationship is not going to be Jewish. And all the other Arayos, at least the child will be a Mamza or whatever it will be, but it won't be, uh, it will still continue to be Jewish. But in this scenario, the child won't be Jewish, and therefore there's a certain severity that exists in this uh, situation. And if it's Bifar Hesia, Kenoim Pogimbo. Yeah? Is the Gemara and Buddha talking about um, uh, Kedushin or Znos? Well, the Mice of Cosby and Zimri was Znos, right? But at least it was Bifar Hesia. So... It's not, it's not limited to Derech Yishos. Was, was also Znus, but that was Bitsina. That was Bitsina. That was also Znus. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The Gemara Sanhedrin um, deepens our understanding of this concept of Kenoi and Pogimbo. And the Gemara says that, um, that along, or, or as, a, as a corollary to this uh, Kenoi and Pogimbo, there's also Nisar Karis. The very fact 
that Pinchas could kill them while they're in the, in the act, the Kenoi Pogimbo, implies that there's some sort of prohibition here, at least some sort of punishment, right? It's not just a license to kill them while they're in the act, but the act is innocuous. Obviously, from the fact that you could kill them in the act, there's some very serious um, violation here. So the Gemara says in the Sanhedrin that there's a punishment of kares for a Jewish man who has relations with a non-Jewish woman. This is based on the Pesach, say from Malachi, where the Pesach says, Asher uh, bas el nechar, he had relations with the um, uh, another god. What do you mean you had relations with another god? So the Gemara says it's referring to a man who has relations with a non-Jewish woman, because it's as if he's marrying the other god, because the child is not going to be Jewish. So the Gemara says, Whoever's relation with a non-Jewish woman is as if he married the Avodah Zarah, because, right, the child is not going to be Jewish. And the following Pesach says, in Sefer Malachi, um, that whoever does this should be cut off. So the says it's a punishment of kares if one, if one does this. A punishment of kares if one does this. Is this kares, though, limited to Bifar Hesya, where Kenoim Pogimpo? Or is that even apply bitsina? Just if it's bitsina, there's no kenoim pogimbo. Meaning, the, the basin show of the kashmirnoim only came to you know to air that we can actually do something about this in the basin shomata. But of course, in the basin shomaila, even if it's bitsina, there's kares. Or should we say kares is a function of the chil hashem aspect? If it's a chil hashem, it's done before in front of ten Jews. So kenoim pogimbo and kares. If it's done bitsina. Neither Kenoim Pogimbo nor Kores. That was the basis of the Kashmir Or maybe we should say, no, that the Kenoim Pogimbo, that's limited to Bifar Hesya, because that's a Pirza, Chil Hashem. Kores applies in either scenario. So that's an issue that's debated there. And the Gemara the Sanhedrin, by the Ran, the Muka Yosef, does the Kores apply? Bain Bifar Hesya, Bain Bitsina. The only thing that's limited to Bifar Hesya is the Kenoim Pogimbo, the Pinchas, right? The idea that the Zealot can kill them in the midst of the act. That's limited to a situation Bifar Hesya, Chil Hashem. Or, or maybe the whole Kores is a function of the Chil Hashem, and it only happen, you know, applies when it, apply, you know, when it happens um, Bifar Hesya. The Rambam, Discussing this issue in the Sefer Mitzvah writes that he believes that the kares applies bain b'tzinya bain b'farhesya. The Rambam says over here in the Sefer Mitzvah, Oishches v'mo'asas e b'farhesya didn't kill him. Um, you know, while it was happening b'farhesya, Shapiris v'lo pagubo. Right, they got away with it and no one caught them in the act. Hinehu mechuy of kares. Don't think you got off the hook completely. You are still high of kares. So now maybe that means it happened b'farhesya and no one attacked you at the time, or maybe it means even if it happened b'tzinya. Um, I don't know, the Ram says, even if it didn't happen before Hesya, this continues to be Kharis. It continues to be Kharis, yeah. Continues to be Kharis. The Ramah, uh, I'm sorry, the Shach, though, on Shulchan Aruch, cites this issue, whether or not the Kharis is limited. If you look at the uh, Shach and Yerodeah over here, Oizir on the sheet, quotes the two opinions in the Rishonim. Is the Kharis limited to a situation of Bifar Hesya, or is the Kharis limited to a situation of, uh, does it even apply to a situation of Bitsina. And that will dictate whether or not we're dealing with an Isa Doiraisa only before Hesha, whether Isa Doiraisa applies even Bitsina. Right? If we're looking for Isurum Doiraisa to, to prohibit intermarriage, so is this idea of the Kenoim Pogimbo teach us an Isa Doiraisa? So if it happens before Hesha, certainly there's an Isa Doiraisa, but it could be it's one of Chil Hashem, not necessarily intermarriage. If it applies Bitsina, we could derive from here a prohibition of Doiraisa. You know, the punishment of Kharis indicates certainly there is a prohibition, even Bitsina, but that's a debate amongst the Rishayim. Does the Kharis apply Bitsina or does the Kharis not apply Bitsina? The Ram seems to assume it does. Other Rishayim seem to debate, uh, to debate the issue. So maybe what we have even there, if it occurs Bitsina, 
is the gzair of the basin of the chashmanoim. Maybe. Maybe. We discussed Lois' chatimbam and the parameters of that. And what about this chnoim pogimbo that might only limit it to farhesi and apitzina? Even the cars might be limited to farhesi and apitzina. And all we have to is the basin of the chashmanoim. However, the maram shik in his chuvis um, argues that anybody who gets intermarried uh, and declares the marriage publicly is considered to be beferhesia, even if they don't engage in you know, the relationship in public, it doesn't matter. The whole thing is considered to be beferhesia because everybody knows about it. The Gemara Mesech the Sanhedrin is discussing the, um, how, yes, how was it that Esther was, enabled to, was permitted to present herself to Achashverosh in order to save the Jewish people. After all, she was a married woman. The Gemara asks, but Esther was in public. In public, um, if you were dealing with Farhesia in front of 10 Jews, you have to give up your life rather than violate any one of the mitzvahs of the Torah. So Tysus there is very bothered. Who cares if it was Farhesia? Even if it's Bitsina, this is Gili Arias. Gili Arias, you have to give up your life, whether it's Farhesia or Bitsina. One of the other Averis is only if it's Farhesia. So Gemara asks, well, Esther was Farhesia. She, she should have had to give up her life. So Tysus there is very bothered. Well, it's Gili Arias. Forget about the Farhesia aspect of it. Tysus deal to the Machlechus of Reinu Tam, and they're really fantastic. However, you know, just getting back to Gemara, but Esther was before Hesia. Esther was before Hesia. She didn't have to give up her life, even if it's not Gilei Arayas. Gemara responds, Esther Karka Olam Hoya. Esther was passive, and therefore, um, you know, she didn't have to give up, give up her life. How was it before Hesia? What, what, was Achashverosh marrying Esther in public? Like, was, this, was this all happening? What is this before Hesia? So the Ritva, in a different context, but commenting on this statement of the Gemara, the Ritva comments, no, this was Beferhesia because everybody knew about it. Everybody knew about it. And the very fact that everybody knows about it makes it, constitutes an act that is done Beferhesia. So maybe one can argue, as well, says the Maram Shik, that anybody who gets intermarried and declares the marriage publicly, even though not engaging in any kind of relationship, you know, public, doesn't matter. The whole thing is considered to be Beferhesia and the Kores of Kenoim Pogimbo, obviously, you know, the activity of the Kenoim Pogimbo, no one's going to do, but the uh, punishment that goes along with it, of uh, the Kares, would, would continue to apply. This is considered to be before Hesia, yeah. When the, when the Maram Sheikh talks about the publicizing, is it that you have to be the one to publicize it? It is public. No, it is public. If it is public, then the Kares would apply, yeah. Does it have to be the same with David, no? David and, uh, and, uh, and what's your name? Okay. Okay, maybe, maybe. Yeah, it's not just one comment. It's very applies in other scenarios too. This is considered to be Bavaria. Okay, so we had two sources, two possible sources. Midday rice for the prohibition of intermarriage. One is Lois's Chatimbam, but that has some limitations, right? It might only be limited to Shiva Umois, might only apply to Derech Ishus, not Baderech Snus. And for that, we need to be at Xavier the Basin of Shame. Um, what about another Easter de Raisa of intermarriage maybe is from the Kenoi Bogomba, the episode of Pinchas, which Allah Chumash Sinai, but that might be limited to Befarhesia and not necessarily Bitsina. That's a Machlaikas Harishainim, whether or not the Kharis continues to apply even Bitsina. Um, but then we said, well, maybe all intermarriage is considered to be uh, some aspect of Befarhesia and would fall under you know, that, that, uh, that prohibition. A third possible prohibition might be involved, Midoi Raisa, in intermarriage. It's a Pasuk in Parshas Kiseitzei. But the Torah tells us, You're not allowed to have a Kedesha Mibanoisisra. What's a Kedesha? So Rashi there writes, Mufkeres Mikudeshis and Mizumenasilznus. That's all I know. It means a person who set aside for um, you know, extramarital relationships. So, 
So, Zainov. Uh, that's how Rashi interprets Osiyah Kedesha. However, and that's how the Ravid interprets it. Osiyah Kedesha, according to the Ravid, refers to, look over here in the Zasagas on the Rambam, and Kedesha was menace for him of Keres The Rambam has his own definition of Kedesha. The Rambam says that Kedesha is any person who has relations outside of the context of marriage. Any relationship outside of the context of marriage is a violation of Osiyah Kedesha. So the Ravid is in the Rambam. That's a Pilegesh. What are you talking about? That, 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 there's no marriage there. That was the Pilegesh spoken about throughout the Chumash, Pilegesh, throughout Tanakh. It doesn't sound like that's a violation of Osiyah Kedesha. So how can the Rambam say any relationship that's outside of the context of marriage is a violation of Kedesha? That's, that's the institution of a Pilegesh. So the Rambam would argue that a Pilegesh actually is only permitted for a king. King is permitted to have a pilegesh. Every private individual is not permitted to have a pilegesh. The Ravid disagrees. The Ravid believes, you know, that uh, that uh, the institution of pilegesh wasn't limited to the king. What then is the losia kadesh? Refers to a woman who's not any relationship uh, that exists outside of marriage, but a woman who's uh, set aside, person who's set aside for relationships outside of marriage. But that's their permanent, you know, occupation or designation. So then, that's a kadesh. The Ramam has a more extreme view. Any relationship outside the context of marriage, even on uh, you know occasional basis. Is a violation of Osiyah Kedesha. However, Rashi, on Chumash quotes from the Targumunculus, that it refers to a Jewish man having a relationship with a Shifcha Kanainis, or a Jewish woman having a relationship with an Evet Kanaini, with whom, right, they're partially Jewish, partially not Jewish. The whole story of the Evet Kanaini and the Shifcha Kanainis, they convert partially when they become an Evet Kanaini and Shifcha Kanainis, and they convert fully when they are freed. But you're not allowed to have a relationship with them. There's no Tfisus Kedushin. So, uh, 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 the Eved Ivri is permitted to be with the Shifcha Kanainis, but that's a special, Gezeris HaKos, a special dispensation, but otherwise, typically not allowed. There's no Tfisus Kedushin. And that's what the Pasuk is referring to. Loisia Kedesha is that a Jewish man can have a relationship with a Shifcha Kanainis, and a Jewish woman should have a relationship with an Eved Kanaini. So, in theory, one could have, and if you look at the language of the Targum Unclis, he says, why, why? If you look in the second line, She'ezim of Karas Abilas, Nosime Acha She'ein Kedushin Toifsin Loibah. There is no Tvises Kiddushin between a Jew and an Evet Kanani, a Jew and a Shifcha Kanainis. So perhaps one could extrapolate from there that any time there is relations without the possibility of Kiddushin, there's no Tvises Kiddushin with this individual, just like the scenario of the Evet Kanani, the Shifcha Kanainis, maybe that should be included in Losia Kiddush, and that should include all scenarios of intermarriage too. But again... One could extrapolate like that from the Targum Unkus, but it's not what he's saying. The Targum Unkus is really talking about the Evi Kanai and the Shavikinus. So even this third source is a little bit uh, disappointing. Certainly all of them are covered by Yisurim the Rabbanan, right? We have the Xer of the Basin of Shoshim, and the Xer of the Basin of the Hashmanoim, that even if it's not Derech Isho, Simavizerotunos, or even if it's Bitsina, um, but um, uh, all three of these prohibitions could, in theory at least, perhaps apply to certain situations of, of intermarriage. But perhaps one can make arguments, you know, against against them. And again, I, I think just to recap, the fact that again the source material is somewhat uh, spotty, um, I do think that that doesn't speak to our relaxed attitude. That speaks to a, 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 a how fundamental and how basic, and how you know how this is such a premise of everything that we stand for in preserving the continuity of the Jewish people is the prohibition of um, of intermarriage. But um, more practically. Um, let's say, of course, it's prohibited, right? No, not, not that halacha But what if you know someone, or there's someone in your family, or whatever, right, who is intermarrying? What should be our relationship with that uh, individual and with that relationship? So, um, there's two 
possible, or maybe more, but at least two concerns. One is um, you don't want to be seen as supporting this Avera. That's a general principle that uh, certainly you cannot aid and abet the Avera, which would be if they evil see they make sure. But even if they could do the Avera without you, or they are doing the Avera without you, we're not supposed to support those who are in the midst of doing Averas. Misayeya, we day over Avera. Not only not to hand them the Avera, but even to give them a chizuk and give them a shkayach for doing the Avera. Uh, mazel Tov is also, is also just as wrong. So that's, there's one issue of supporting one and doing an Avera. Misayeya, we day over Avera. Um, and then there's another concern, which is that you shouldn't be seen as giving your stamp of approval to this kind of Avera by attending, you know, the ceremony or by including them, perhaps, you know, in, uh, you know, in family functions in the future. You don't want to be seen as approving of this, of this union. And that's a very serious issue that goes back to the mission of Mesechtas, Soita. The mission says that Agrippus HaMelech, Agrippus was the son of Hordus, and he was the king after Hordus, and he functioned as the king, even though he wasn't Jewish. He functioned as the king. What, what is one of the functions of the king? Hakel is to read from the Sefer Torah and the Beis HaMikdash in the year after the Shnas Hashmita on the first day of Chalam HaYitzukis. So the king would get up and read the Sefer Torah. So Agribus HaMelech was acting as the king and he read from the Sefer Torah. Agribus HaMelech, Amad Vekiba Vekara Oimed, Vishabchul Chachamim. Everyone gave him a Shkoyach. Part of the parashas that he has to read includes the pasuk that I know that a nachri cannot be the king. Zilguain of Demos, he began to cry. Amulo Altisyara Agrippas, don't be afraid of Agrippas. Achinuata, Achinuata. Don't worry, you're our brother, you're our brother. So they gave him Chizuk. They gave him a stamp of approval. Don't worry, it's fine. Sigmar says at that moment, they became deserving of destruction. Their demise was sealed because they were machnef, they flattered Agrippas. That's a violation of the Pesachim. Don't flatter. Don't flatter you know, those who are engaged in doing an Avera. Why were they deserving of being put to death? Rabbeinu Yoyna, he writes in the Shari Tshuva, because this is almost a kind of a Yahari Valyavar, even though they should have been afraid of Agrippas, because he was the king. He could, have, he could have killed them. It doesn't matter. This is almost a kind of Yahari Valyavar, not to be Machne for Russia, because by giving your stamp of approval, you're compromising on the uh, content of the Torah. You're distorting the Torah. Zeal of HaTorah, changing the Torah is not, you know, itself could be a, a Yaharig Valyavar. Taisus there in Saita disagrees. He says it's not Yaharig Valyavar. The reason why they were condemned was because they didn't really need to do this to Agrippus. They were going to be fine. Agrippus wasn't going to harm them. And they did this gratuitously. That's why they were so wrong. But in fact, if their lives had been endangered, Besides there, Gemara Masechtas to Durham, that you do have the right to be machna for Russia in order to save your life. So the opinion of Tosis is Chanifal uh, Rishoyim is not Yahar Valyavar. The opinion of the Rabbeinu Yoyna is it is Yahar Valyavar. But we, it's still an issue whether Yahar Valyavar or not. It's definitely something that we have to we should be concerned about. And therefore, by giving kind of you know a stamp of approval, it's a kind of a, a being machna for Russia. You're kind of giving a you know. A, making him think that what he's doing is okay, um, flattering him in that way, and that's, uh, that itself is its own prohibition. So therefore, the, the position, I'd say the traditional view was that if a person was intermarried, so, you know, I mean, in the olden times, they would sit shiva, right, for the individual. Um, uh, and, but but uh, Rav Salvechik was very adamant that he should not attend the ceremony, none of the family should attend the ceremony, and that person uh, who intermarried should not be invited to future family simchas or gatherings. Really, kind of excommunicated completely. Pretty severe, pretty severe reaction. This has to be balanced, of course, though, with the um, 
you know, the, our desire to always com- communicate that the doors for tshuva are always open. You know, we, we would like them to come back. And the Kodesh Baruch is certainly willing to take them back. So it could be in those times, right, this kind of strong-arm approach, um, laying down the law, was effective in bringing people back or in helping them refrain from engaging in intermarriage, right, in the first place. And certainly intermarriage and assimilation, you know, in, in decades past was a very sensitive, right, you know, it was quite common and, and, and unfortunately. And, you know, the kind of the, the, the position had to be made clear that this is something that's, that's, that's completely anathema and, and, and un, uh, unacceptable. And by going to the wedding, you know, uh, um, ipso facto, you would have been seen as participating in celebration. Um, however, you know, I think it always, we have this struggle, right? We have to make sure we're not supporting people and doing Averis. We have to make sure that we're not giving our stamp of approval to something that we find, you know, obviously um, is against everything that we stand for. At the same time, we have to somehow communicate that the doors for tshuva are always open and to kind of keep that uh, lines of communication alive. And today, in considering that bigger picture, it might pay for us to reconsider how, what our approach to this uh, issue is. I'm not saying people should go. I'm just saying we have to have a kind of a bigger picture approach to make sure that, you know, that we're, we're, we're first of all, you have to know how things will be interpreted. Will my going be seen as a stamp of approval? Will it not be seen as a stamp of approval? It's certainly something that figures into the calculations, right? If you're a rabbi, obviously, be perceived differently than if you're not. Um, but to how things are being perceived, where is the community on this issue? What is the sensitivity level on this issue? It might make a difference where a person is. But also, we always want to keep the lines of communication open. And then on the strong arm approach today, you know, has been shown to be, you know, not that effective. The Chazanish talks about, as everybody knows, talks about there are certain individuals who have to be, you know, a certain kind of very harsh punishments, severe punishments, uh, for certain, violating certain Averis and the Moridim Vlomalan and the Chazanish writes today that that shouldn't be our approach. The whole reason for that was a certain Teichacha, to keep them engaged. Today, the more effective approach would be to be Makar of them by Vaisa Sahava. And even sometimes to give a little, you know, Hanifa over here, the Orchaz Sadiq and the Chazam Sefer right, if it's for the purpose of bringing them back, um, so then, not to accomplish something. I don't get anything out of this. The reason why it'd be machnef, they would make machnef agripas, so you would treat them nicely. They were getting something in return. That's chanifa. What am I getting in return? I just want to make sure this person knows that the doors of tshuva are still open. I don't get anything in return. So, so if that's the intention, so then, you know, so then there's, there's, there's what to think about. So I think we need to be creative in how we approach this situation. Every situation is different. The sensitivities of every community are different. The sensitivities of every family are different. We can't be seen as supporting or endorsing, uh, giving approval to an Avera, certainly something of this uh, gravity. We have to make sure to communicate that the lines of tshuva are still open. Does that mean that one family member keeps a relationship? Does that mean, you know, you, we can be creative in negotiating how to communicate that uh, very important message, that the lines of tshuva and the doors are always open. At the same time, you know, stating our opposition to how, you know, the severity and the gravity of this issue. Yeah. Is there an opinion between like showing like emotional support like, between a family, like showing that you're still family and that's exactly the needle we're trying to thread. How do you do that without compromising on your principles of being seen as giving your stamp of approval? I, I will say also, right, even if someone does get intermarried, a lot of unfortunately or you know, in this situation, fortunately, a lot of marriages end in divorce. So you never know, right? You don't want to turn, you know, a lot of times, you know, the person can have a second, you know, chance and maybe the next time they'll choose more wisely if we kept the 
uh, doors and lines of communication open. If we let them know that we still love them and they're still part of our family, even though we totally disagree with the life choice that they made. So that's a very delicate balance to strike. In the previous generations, they, you know, they complete, you know, excommunication as recently as, you know, last, last 10, 10, 20 years. And in certain circles, that's still the view, and I, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, in, in this circle, <laughs> that in certain, you know, in, in many people maintain that view. However, we do have to, and I'm not saying that trying to veer from that. I do think that we need to be creative in thinking about how to maintain the lines of communication being open. The strong arm approach strongly does not bring people back anymore. That's for sure. So we have to try and think about how we can be creative solutions in, in threading that very important needle. Yeah. I've heard of cases where, like, people who are, let's say, intermarried, like, 